Welcome to One Tired Teacher, episode 88, Problem Solving in the Math Classroom. So today I have a special guest, Meg Anderson from the Teacher Studio, and she is talking all about problem solving in math and what that looks like for kids and how sometimes they struggle with that typical answer of, I don't get it, and what we can do to help them move from the I don't get it to I got it. I hope you stick around. Welcome to One Tired Teacher. And even though she may need a nap, this teacher is ready to wake up and speak her truth about the trials and treasures of teaching. Here she is, wide awake. Wait, she's not asleep right now, is she? She, she is awake, right? Okay. From Trina Debery Teaching and Learning, your host, Trina Debery. Hey, so I'm back with another amazing guest. I've had such great guests for the past five or six weeks. It's been really incredible. And all of my guests have been presenters of Whole Teacher Eclecticon, which took place at the la- on the last week of July. And it was really an amazing experience. I hope that you had a chance to experience that for yourself. It was just an unbelievable you know, approach to the whole entire teacher. And it was just truly an amazing experience. And I think the doors are shut. And so you might have missed out. But next time, be on the lookout for that because it was really unbelievable. And Meg was another presenter that I had the privilege of, of, of working with through Whole Teacher Eclecticon, and she, you know, she did an amazing session, and she has a lot of words of wisdom to share with us today, specifically in regards to problem solving. So let's get on with the show. So I'm so happy to have Meg Anderson here today from the Teacher Studio. She is a fourth grade teacher, and we are going to be talking about incorporating problem solving into the day and how to get kids really thinking and solving their own problems, (laughs) which is sometimes a first. So welcome, Meg. Thank you so much for having me today. So Meg, all right. So tell us a little bit, tell us a little bit about you and your like background with teaching. Sure. Um, I am super old. I have been teaching for 29 years. (laughs) Um, I actually have taught grades two, three, four, and six. I've been a looping teacher. I've taught in several, well, only two districts, but lots of different buildings. So I've had a pretty rich um, background. I have my my administrative license. I have a director of instruction license. And, you know, I always thought that that's what I wanted to do, but I'm not going to lie. I have not been able to leave the kids. I I love Mm -hmm. being in the trenches. I say that out loud, so you know those days when it's not as fun or a little more stressful, I, I remind myself, you love the trenches, you love the trenches, but um, so yeah, it's been a long, a long time teaching, but I know I have a lot more years in me, um, so that's kind of my teaching history. The way I've um, kind of reached the adults, uh, because that's a passion of mine, is um, I've taught some graduate level classes on curriculum and instruction. I've taught a lot of workshops. And then in 2012, I started my blog. And it's been kind of my baby. And it's been a way for me to share inspiration, best practices, and so on with teachers around the world. And so that's been um, how I've been able to keep firmly rooted in the classroom, but also be able to reach other teachers as well. 
Yeah, no, I love that. That's great. And that's the, um, that's the teacher. Is that the teacher studio as well? Correct. Yes. Okay. I'll link to that in the show notes too, because I'm sure that you have like a, a wealth of information. That's a, yeah, that's a long time, but you are not old. And I've been, cause I mean, I'm not very far behind you. It's been 22, 23 years. And so it's not, and, and my, and I've done some looping as well. And then I thought about the administrative side. I did, I was a student support specialist at a, my school with my long-term principal that I worked for, for almost 20 years. He wanted me to go in that direction. So I kind of was like, okay, so I was learning all this stuff. And then I'm like, he left and got promoted and I'm like, uh, no, so <laughs> I don't want to do it with, with him not here. And then I actually did do that job this year, but it was just discipline. It was like all discipline and nothing else. And I was like, Oh no, 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 no. So it's changing. Thank goodness. Yeah. That was, that's not my favorite part. Like that's not a part that, that I enjoy. So I love making connections with kids, but yeah, but not like coming in and no. So it's not my thing, but anyway. All right. So you, so a lot of experience. So tell me a little bit, like I definitely see that kids struggle with with problem solving and knowing like they're so used to like instant gratification is the thing that I see a lot that they're, they constantly want those problems solved immediately and sometimes not by themselves. So like, what do you, what do you say to that? Oh, I agree. Um, absolutely. Um, and we as teachers, I think need to acknowledge that our kids have changed their exposure to media and technology has changed, but that doesn't mean that we should, give into that, but we do need to approach those strategy, strategies differently. Um, I think for teachers who aren't that familiar with the standards for mathematical practice, that's a great starting point. And really, the, the standard that says make sense of problems and persevere is possibly one of the most misunderstood standards. Uh, people kind of glom onto that word persevere and they do all sorts of great activities to teach kids to kind of stick with things and and that's fantastic and super critical but when you really dig into that standard and realize that helping kids make sense of problems uh, and breaking it down and look for entry points and be able to draw from a bank of strategies I call it their toolbox. So as I introduce uh-huh. new things to students and I say, okay, put this in your toolbox. You never know when you're going to need to pull it out. And so yeah. by teaching those really explicitly and then gently coaching or asking that question like, well, what have we done before that might get you started on a problem today? Um, you know, it puts more of that ownership back on the students for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, that makes total sense. So what kinds of strategies would you would you put in, in the toolbox for problem solving? Oh, well, how long do we have? Let's see. <laughs> Actually, um, you know, like we were just talking about with your, uh, talking about second graders and, at, you know, what a critical time they are. I'd like to start the year um, with things that are more concrete. So we are using manipulatives. We're um, drawing pictures. I teach my students how to draw what I call math pictures. So mm-hmm. if you're drawing four boxes of kittens, that doesn't mean you have to have a three-dimensional box and your kittens have to have all their whiskers. It could be a square and an X. So Mm -hmm. how do we represent information from a problem using what I call, again, math pictures is one of my Uh my very first strategies. And another one that I think teachers often overlook, we talk about it in literacy all the time, and that's visualization. 
-hmm. So when I read a problem with a student or a group of students, I ask them to close their eyes and I want them to see it acting out because problem solving or word problems, that's the real world manifestation of why we teach math, right? And mm -hmm. I talk about this in my session quite a bit is sometimes we have students that see math as filling out boxes in a workbook and mm -hmm. don't realize that the workbook is a way to practice the math that they need for their whole life. So I really try to tie mm -hmm. into the real world. But, you know, if there's a problem like Trina is walking into a bakery to buy donuts, guys, can you see that in your mind? And they're all nodding, right? And drooling. Yes. And of course, I always use donuts, and cookies, and pizza because I'm, I'm addicted to foods like that. So <laughs> I'll say, have you ever seen those glass cases? This problem says, Trina walked up to the glass case and saw that there were six trays. I want you to get that. And I actually talked to my kids about making a whiteboard in their brain, uh -huh. where they can uh -huh. actually sketch it out in their brain. And for some kids, this is very natural. And for other kids, it really takes some practice. Yes. So, you know, that problem can go any number of directions, right? I could say, now, the bakery has 12 donuts on each tray. Let's, let's see that mental picture now. Let's draw it in our notebooks. So that whole visualization, because so often, and I'm sure you've seen it, kids will read a problem and they'll say, I don't get it. Yes. Okay, so, you know, as a, as a teacher, if we can get better at asking those coaching or those scaffolding questions to help them, well, what do you know? What do you see? What can you draw? Those are great concrete ways to get kids started. Mm -hmm. I think that's excellent. I love that. And visualization, I think, is so powerful. And it helps. I, I think that way, like I see in pictures. So for me, it does come natural. I know it's, you're right. It doesn't always come natural for some kids, but I think even telling them that it doesn't have, it represents what it can represent that picture, like the, you know, the X and the circle or whatever. So they don't have to get into this elaborate drawing habit, which is sometimes what some of my littler kids would want to do. But I'm like, you know, obviously that's going to take up a lot of time, but, and it also prevents people like me who can't draw at all we can still use that and as a teacher you know you want to be able to draw because I mean but the kids would you know just laugh and they're like oh my goodness Miss Devery what is that and I'm like I know it's supposed to be a dog but it looks like a horse so <laughs> it's all right we can still solve this problem but um but I love I just love visualization because I think it is such a powerful way for them to like really think about about the problem and about how they can go about solving the problem I think that is, I think that's really powerful. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, um, and I know like, what do you say to kids when they, well, actually, first of all, I want to say something about that, um, visualization that you started with. Like you had that, <laughs> you had that bakery with the donuts or whatever. And I used to use that when I was trying to teach my kids how to, use punctuation, like how to, you know, because they would have all these sentences without periods and capitals. And, and I'm like, okay, so this is what it kind of reminds me of. And I used that, that bakery scene. I'm like, imagine that you have, you walked up to this bakery and they're the best foods are behind the glass and you see cookies and cakes. And I describe everything really in detail, you know, the chocolate chocolate cake and this and that. And, um, and I'm like, and you're just looking at it and you're so hungry and you think this is the most beautiful bakery you've ever seen. And I'm like, and it's, and you can see everything right behind the glass and, and they're all like, yeah, 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 I got it. And I'm like, and now 
I go, there's a, you know, a little four-year-old who just walked up and he's really excited about the bakery and he's like leaning up on the glass and he's got his sticky fingers on the glass and he's breathing on the glass. And now he's even licking the glass and they're like, Ooh. and I'm like, now all that smudge and now it's smeared over the glass. I'm like, that's kind of what it looks like when we're looking at your writing. And I, I'm like, we know we've got beautiful ideas behind it, but when you don't punctuate and don't put periods and capitals and people don't know when to take a breath when they're reading, I'm like, they can't see it through all the smudge. And so then they're like, oh, and so it like helped them to solve their problem of not being able to remember to put periods and capitals, they would even say to each other, you've got a dirty glass. You've got dirty glass. You need to make sure you clean it so they can see your ideas. And I'm like, yes. So that's funny that you had that bakery thing because that's immediately what I thought of. That's, when I, that's when I an amazing example though. And we can do the same thing with math. You know, when we start to talk about precision and accuracy and organization of your work and uh, helping kids showcase their work and explain their mm. thinking. And when we see how some students, you know, are just so natural at organizing their math thinking and to be able to display those under a document camera or to share in small groups, you know, they start to internalize that and, you know, can strive to do that. And it's so much more powerful than if we just put a sample up on the board and say, make it look like mine. You know, when yes. students become engaged in recognizing those things. I think that makes sense. I think organizing is probably another like strategy that we would definitely want to show the kids to help Absolutely. them. Absolutely. So, okay. So we've talked about visualizing. We've talked about organizing. Give me, give me a few more for, for my listeners of things that you would automatically think of. Sure. Um, you know, I think that we've, a lot of math programs, if you teach a math series, will often introduce lessons like the make a list strategy or work backwards, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. And so those are things that, you know, I just always try to make sure that as the year unfolds, I'm exposing them to that kind of problem and, and naming it. Um, rather than, oh, it's chapter eight, lesson four. I try to get as much of that early in the year as they can. So again, it's in their toolbox, ready for them to, to use. But, you know, like anything, it takes multiple exposures and, um, you know, frequent revisiting of all of those to really give them ownership of those mm -hmm. strategies. So, but again, to start the year and they, it comes back over and over again is the, all those more concrete things and you know mm -hmm. some of your listeners might be um, familiar with the um, the CRA model of teaching math where you start with a very concrete representation then students need to be kind of coached as how to represent it in different ways and then we can move to the abstract so I definitely um, probably err on the side of making those connections concrete and representational with the strategies and mm -hmm. um, spend enough time there because students, once they've been exposed to those things multiple times, are far more likely to make that leap to the more abstract. We call yeah. them naked numbers in my room. You know, when there's a problem where there's just nothing to ground them, you know, mm -hmm. we want them to be able to contextualize the math they're doing. And that's where that visualization and those drawings and modeling are, um, are so critical. Yes, I think that's great. And I also think like it's important to show kids like how to, what to do when they struggle, like what it feels like to struggle and, and like some solutions to that feeling of struggle. And sometimes I was just speaking to um, 
oh, to Claire from Vivify, which is another presenter at the conference. And she was talking about like putting these things into place where they, where they almost fail on purpose, where like you want, yeah, where they, we want them to fail in these like STEM challenges. And then, and then they take what they learned from the failure and you like reframe the challenge. And then all of a sudden that whatever they learned now becomes part of what they need as their solution, which I'm like, that's, I think that's so exciting. Like, I love that. And I think for teachers who went through an education system where you were rewarded for the hundred percent, you got the gold star for getting everything right. This is a huge paradigm shift for us too, Mm -hmm. but I mentioned it in my presentation, the work of Joe Bowler out of Stanford, you know, has Mm -hmm. her, her brain research is so crystal clear that we do grow our brain. We grow those synapse connections when we learn, but also Mm -hmm. when we make mistakes and not only do we grow our brain when we make mistakes, but when we can then study the mistakes and fix the mistakes and analyze them, it's you know astronomical, the growth. But we can't keep that a secret from students. Yes. We know it as teachers, but we don't make it public to them, then we haven't done them any favors. So you know that creating that culture for math understanding where students can learn that math doesn't always happen fast. Math doesn't always happen perfectly. Um, and that, that idea of productive struggle that Joe Bowler speaks of. Um, in mm-hmm. fact, just for your listeners, if they're looking for an amazing book, her book um, called Mathematical Mindsets is just Ooh. a fantastic resource to help you better understand how the brain learns math. Uh, on her website, ucubed.org, um, she has links to countless videos geared just for kids that talk about these things. How some of the oh, best, yeah, best math minds in the world through history and in the present didn't do well in math class. They aren't fast at their facts. And until mm-hmm. we can shift kids' understanding of what it means to be a good math student, because we're kind of perpetuating this myth that good math students know their facts quickly, they get 100% on their assignments, they're done with their work quickly, they raise their hand a lot. Um, we need to work to shift that so that our students recognize that, hey, mistakes grow your brain. In fact, we do an activity in my classroom called My Favorite Mistake, where I'll share, I'll look through the work and I'll find some things and share what kind of mistakes were made and we study them. And then, you know, I'll ask my students, did anyone else make them this mistake? And all oh, the hands should go, I did, I did. Or well, I didn't make that mistake, but I made this mistake. And other I love not. that. So that's a culture piece. And really yes, that's great. I love that. My favorite you. mistake. I'm totally writing that down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we will often display mistakes and fixes. Um, but that again, from the very first day of school, that is a way to build that, that appreciation for what math learning is. Yes. Yes. Ooh, I even just, I'm thinking I even want to do like my favorite mistakes, like an area in the media center where like they bring their favorite mistakes and we start talking about like, you know, how some of those mistakes became even a major fix. I mean, that's how a lot of things were invented. So I think, yeah, I think that's really cool. All right. So that problem solving type of thinking, like how do you, how do you kind of push that into other subject areas or other areas of their life? Right. Well, I do think that the whole growth mindset 
um, that we're kind of tangentially touching on right now applies to everything we do. Um, and that idea of productive struggle and being patient with yourself and also that whole being willing to ask for help, whether yes. it's from your students sitting next to you, you know, um, creating that culture in your classroom where it's okay. In fact, it's, it's awesome. We are all teachers of each other so that, you know, we can capitalize on that. Um, you know, we often, you know, historically have taught math where the teacher does a, a mini lesson of some sort, maybe models solving a few problems on the, on the whiteboard. Um, kids go back, they do some work, maybe it's alone, maybe it's together, the teacher walks around and coaches, and you know, that's kind of how things mm -hmm. unfold. But by, you know, creating different situations where maybe you um, start the class with a more um, open-ended task where they're working together and having to do that struggle and get their brains warmed up, then you come together and you kind of teach through those or you introduce a new thing, a new strategy or a way to solve the problem. But then that idea for me after I've taught my mini lesson, rather than sending all my students back, is I have an, invit an open invitation. Would anybody like to stay up here and work with me? That whole, it's okay to stay up for extra coaching or um, I'll do a sign up on the board. Does anybody want to do um, a review mini lesson on two digit multiplication? I'm doing it at one o'clock today, sign up. And that, that culture for, oh yeah, you know what? I probably could use a little help with that and to be able yeah. to own that. Or boy, I really need help um, finding a good book because I keep picking books that are too hard for me. And, mm -hmm. and that, that culture where it is okay to not be perfect all the time. Yeah. Oh, no, I think that's great. I, I love that. Like that, that's, that's really powerful. Okay. So I, I want to link to, um, Joel Bowler's, um, information. So I'll get that, that website from you. And I definitely mm -hmm. want to link, link to your store and your, um, blog, because I know that that will be really helpful. What do, is there, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to, you would like to talk about, or you would like to offer? Sure. Um, or you, you wish know, I had asked you. <laughs> for me, teaching right now can be really overwhelming. You know, we're asked to document things and to assess. And, you know, we've got children coming to us with all sorts of needs and concerns. And now they want us to teach virtually, but maybe not. And we don't know for the fall. And there's a lot of uncertainty. Yes. But, there are some things that remain unchanged and you know there are best practices in teaching we we know to be true in my um session at the conference i kind of highlight some of the things that the research has shown to be you know that we need to be doing less of and doing more of and if we can educate ourselves about what's effective mm -hmm. and what works it's this kind of spiral effect students become more engaged when students are more engaged, we have less behavior issues and we have less behavior yes. issues. We can teach more. We are more excited. We're more engaged. So when we have all these other things surrounding us, if we can remember that planning really good engaging instruction is kind of the foundation and we can't yes. lose that. So that's really kind of what the intent of my blog is, is to keep pushing ideas for teachers that are interesting and exciting and very, very practical and 
you don't have to read a 200 page book to figure it out. It's just a mm -hmm. try this, right? Yes. Yes. So, you know, 500, 600 blog posts later, <laughs> eight oh years later, you know, it's been kind of my dumping ground for those ideas. So if people are ever just kind of looking for something to, you know, help them kind of break away from the, I have another IEP meeting, or we have another yes. staff meeting, or we have to fill out our assessment forms, go, you know, do some reading on some tangible things to remember why you joined this club of teachers in the first place. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think that's a great idea because I think we need that constant motivation when we feel like we're pushed down a lot. So I, I definitely, I think it's important. I think it's really important. So those are the kinds of things, those are the kind of resources that we need to be looking for or, you know, blog posts that inspire us and motivate us and give us something practical to try. And I think we need to, to jump in and try it and, and, not, and not always be, oh no, I'm, I'm afraid to do it this way. I've always done it like this. Like actually saying, you know what, I'm going to give it a try. Because you're right, when students are engaged, it changes the behavior, it changes the whole culture of your classroom. It makes a huge difference. And as I was telling you off air, being student, the student support specialist this past year, I saw a lot of behavior issues. And a lot of times, I, you know, I'd have to go in the classroom with the students sometimes to help them acclimate to the classroom. And it, it was like, we, yeah, if we don't have them like going and excited, then it's really difficult for some of those people that have a hard time sitting still. Absolutely. So, and you know what, if we're, if we're wanting our students to have a growth mindset to try new things and to be okay making mistakes, guess what? We need to model that for them too, don't we? Yes, absolutely. We absolutely do. Well, I really appreciate this, Meg. I, I learned a lot. You had some really great suggestions and I appreciate you coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. And I think that your session is going to be very, are you doing, are you doing the session on problem solving? I, mean, I that's am. Your session. Yep. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. So if you missed Meg's session at Whole Teacher Eclecticon and it's not still available and you never know, I'll link to it just in case, then at least you got some information today on the podcast and you can really start to think about how we can, you know, get our kids to really do a better job of problem solving. Ah, so I have to tell you, I'm getting ready to go back to school next. Well, actually, when this comes out, I will be at school already. I will have already gone back to school because I start on, on August 3rd, which is a day after my son turns 16. So it's always it's just, you know, that's a lot of emotions going on with that happening, with him turning 16 and then going back and having to wear face masks and shields and I bought a, a, a hat that has like a shield in the front of it because I thought, you know, I needed some different options because I think that the mask behind my ears is going to bother me like sensory wise. And so I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll try out this, this hat with this face shield. And it's, I, well, first of all, I look ridiculous. And secondly, like you can't hear me. I'm going to have to yell or buy one of those portable like microphones because I sound like I'm in a bubble. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how this is going to work. I'm just, if you are in this boat, like I'm just praying for all the teachers and students that are, that are going to be the guinea pigs. It feels like anyway, this one tired teacher, I, you know, I've been rejuvenated by all these really wonderful guests and I'm really thankful that I, I got to be a part of something so special and, um, yeah, but I'm feeling kind of tired. So this one tired teacher is ready for a nap. 
Until next time, sweet dreams and sleep tight. 